we come to Psalm 98 this morning, we've been working our way through the, the Psalms, and, uh, and we've hit a whole, whole bunch of different kinds of Psalms as we've gone through it. And as I've prepared on uh, Psalm 98, it's a, it's a shorter Psalm, it's a simpler Psalm, it's a Psalm of, of exuberant praise. And it reminded me as I, as I was reading it and studying it, a lot of the songs that I sang when I first uh, came to Christ. I came in the early 80s, so you can imagine right there on the tail end of the 70s, you know, the Jesus people and their stuff coming in and the stuff that was going on, and so I came to Christ in a, in a period of time that um, the music, at least in my experience, had, had gone through a lot of changes. So the uh, church, when I came to Christ, I had grown up Episcopalian, so I had experienced some very formal, high church kind of stuff. I came to Christ through the assemblies of God. Uh, so I spent a couple of years in the Pentecostal church, and you know, we sang some stuff. And then <clears throat> through the charismatic church, I, I, you know, it was a little bit different quite than a full-on Pentecostal. I came into the PCA in college, and so in college, the PCA church I was a part of was a rural, growing, bigger than, than us, 400 people, but a rural PCA church that was very eclectic and sang all of those choruses and songs that had come in in that period of time as well as the hymns and we played piano we met in a gym pca church we used a piano but one of the elders played banjo and man we used it all whatever we had we we worshiped so in the pca it was very eclectic and but i also was part of a college fellowship and we met in academic buildings and had electronic keyboard and just a guitar and we we worshiped. Again, the college fellowship I was part of was bigger than this church. And we worshiped to the electronic keyboard. And I've been in a church of 30 people where there's one guy who sort of strummed and couldn't. And we worshiped. I spent eight weeks in India and went to church every week there, well, multiple times a week. And I can't even begin to express to you how different instrumentally the songs, the way, everything. It was just different. But man, we worshiped. I did worship in rural Central America, in El Salvador, in a Pentecostal, have you ever been with Pentecostal El Salvadorans in rural, you know, they worship too. And here's, I guess, where I'm coming from. I, by the time, and I came here in this church in a, in a bit more formal day, three hymns from the hymnal with organ and piano, and, and I worship. And I worship, I pretty much, you could probably put me pretty much anywhere. And it doesn't matter to me. And it hasn't mattered to me, which is why it sometimes almost brings me to tears. How much it sometimes... The, our culture has gone through a shift in the last 50 years. A powerful shift. Unlike our country has seen probably since its founding. It's happened faster and more dramatically than at any time in our country's existence. A full-on cultural shift. And it has brought changes, and it has brought different things, and, and it has created wars. We've talked about the culture wars for the last 50 years that the church has been fighting with itself, and liberalism, and the culture, and we talk about the music wars, and the worship wars that have been in the church. And probably I can say, I mean, I haven't had a lot of sorrow in my life, and probably of the, of the things that have caused me great sorrow in my life, probably this goes on the list that I could have on one hand, is the way that these kind of things has been allowed to tear the church up. 
And so I come to you this morning as I study this psalm this week and I read it and it reminds me of different days when I sang with different people in a different place to different instruments and we sang different songs. The choruses that were, most of the choruses we sang were just the song, the exact words of hymns put to just a contemporary melody. And we sang, let us enter His gates with thanksgiving in my heart. And we sang all those things and we sang them with our whole soul to to. So I sing as I come to this psalm. It reminds me of all. It reminded me of that, and as I, just the way that this psalm fits into the rest of the psalter, the way this psalm fits into the flow of music from from the very beginnings of of Exodus, where Moses is singing songs after his deliverance, to the songs we see the seraphim singing around the throne of God. Very simple things that they proclaim very repetitively around the throne, and all the ways that worship has been done biblically and historically? Read with me Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of all the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to Yahweh with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fill it. The world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing forth for joy together before Yahweh, before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth and He will judge the world in righteousness and all of the peoples with equity. Pray with me. Oh God in heaven, we would obey this song. We would have the spirit of the psalmist. We would be filled with such praise and worship in such a heart, in such a spirit. And we would understand how this worship here informs and teaches us about worship now. Even as we continue to struggle to find our voice as a church. Father, help us and have mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. Boyce, James Montgomery, PCA pastor in Philadelphia, commenting on this psalm, said it is one of the most joyful songs in the Bible. Another commentator said it has such a tone of exuberant praise. You know what hymn was based on this psalm? Joy to the world. We sing it at Christmas. Interestingly, we sing it at the, it is a Christmas song, it's a song of incarnation and the Lord coming, but really the picture here is of, and, and it could be understood, you know, the Lord came in Christ and there's a way in which He did judge the world in His first coming, but we see so much more clearly a picture of Jesus coming in, in His ultimate glory to judge the earth. But Isaac Watts saw it so clearly and wrote, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. 
coming to judge the earth, Leupold says this hymn throbs with the hope of the Lord's coming. And so there's an outburst of celebration. There's no other way to describe it. There are different ways. I guess you could try to put different notes to this if you were to do it musically and what it would be like, but you just can't put very many minor notes in this song or it just doesn't seem to me that you can. It is an outburst of praise. There's a swelling expansion of worship that begins in the beginning. It's a swelling expansion that wells up in a sense from Israel that's experienced some deliverance. And it wells up and, and, and goes out, he says, to the whole earth and to invite the whole earth into it. So you got every voice on the planet invited to sing and to join. And then he says, well, that's not enough. We want all of creation, the voice of creation. We want the sea and the rivers and the hills and every, everything animate and inanimate. The entire globe should give praise to the God who is coming. It reminds you of Romans 8 where it talks about um, nature itself groaning and waiting for the Lord to come to share in the redemption of the children of God. So there's expansion of praise. It starts in those first three verses, which is really, it starts just with Israel. Somewhere in Israel at this time, they experienced a deliverance. They experienced God's gracious Victory in some way in the life of their, of their experience. And, and it starts with this praise where he calls Israel to sing. And to sing a new song. Because something new has happened in the life of God's people. Sing a new song. He's not calling Israel to sing this song. Almost every commentator I read agreed that he's not saying sing this song. He is saying... He's saying, you sing new songs. right? He's not calling them to sing what he's just written. He's calling them to write their own songs, to do what he has just done, which is to put voice to his own heart of worship. His own heart of praise in response to God. In other words, he calls us to sing our own songs, in our own voice, in our own ways in our own context, in what God has done in our lives here and now with giving expression of of our worship. And the reason is, he tells us throughout those verses 1-3, to is that God has done a marvelous thing. He's worked salvation. And we know here, at least in this moment in time, it probably, it definitely was some temporal salvation. Right? It wasn't Jesus hasn't come yet and he he doesn't necessarily see that. I believe this is a prophetic and messianic psalm and and ultimately does that. But he's just talking about something God did in their lives to make their lives better. To deliver them from some oppression, some problem, some pain. some. And so he says God has done marvelous things. He has worked salvation. This deliverance. He's made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of all the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to His people. And that's something each one of us could say. There are many things on almost a day-to-day basis where I can say that God has remembered His steadfast love and His faithfulness to me. And there are times in the car, sometimes I sing songs that exist, and sometimes it's not like that. It should be in my car sometimes. Sometimes, you know, I'm putting my own tune to things that I've memorized from the Scriptures. Sometimes I'm just giving voice to my own stuff. Not very good at it. But I do it anyway. 
I, we don't know what the circumstance was. There are some, I read commentators, they said, oh, they think this is very old and it speaks of the, of the deliverance through the, the Red Sea with Moses. Some said this is, no, it's probably the deliverance from exile as Israel returns home and is freed to rebuild the temple and to rebuild their nation and their worship. And so, others suggested other things or that it could be something personal in the psalmist's life. But nobody's really sure, but they are sure that it is prophetic and messianic and that it, what it ultimately sees and speaks to and helps us to give voice to is the second coming of Christ, even as we sing it every Christmas. Put, you know, edited and changed and put to different music. We still sing it. What is clear from it though is that there's been an experience of deliverance. God's grace and His faithfulness have been experienced in a, in a fresh way. And and it calls forth new music. It calls forth a new song. A new expression to capture our worship of what God is doing in our midst. And so in verses 4-6, to six, it moves on and He invites in the whole earth. Right? It's not enough to say Israel ought to do this. It, it, this, is, this is a response that the whole earth should be giving to God. And so he says, make a joyful noise. And it's interesting, I did some research on that and looking at it, because why does it say other places it says sing, make music and melody and this. And then there are a couple places where it says make a joyful noise. And other places where it says to burst forth in joyous song, it actually is a word to shout. Uh, and, this, and this joyful noise is exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's noise. Um, to make loud and so it calls for the earth, he says, to make a joyful noise to Yahweh in acceptable worship, to break forth in joyous song and sing His praises. God is Lord of the nations and He's the creator of the whole earth and the whole earth owes Him worship and someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and every tongue will sing. And here they're invited and in that sense this is missional. God had delivered His people but the psalmist invites every tongue on the planet to join in. That's missions. Missions, in fact, I think it's Piper that talks about we do missions for the sake of worship. To create worshipers who will join their voice to the choir. And it's eclectic. Because if you go to Japanese church in Japan and worship it, if you go to China and some of the big churches there, or you go to India where I worshiped, or you go to South America, or you go, it is an eclectic voice. And God says, good, bring it forth. Make a joyful noise, all the earth. Sing praises, use the lyre. And He starts pulling out you know, instruments. These aren't familiar instruments, are they? They're not instruments that we would... No. When's the last time you saw somebody play a lyre? You know, and some of the other instruments would be familiar. Here he speaks specifically of the lyre and the trumpet, which is a very strange combination to me. Especially if they're the only two instruments you're playing. The trumpet blaring and the lyre. The lyre was like an early harp guitar thing. They had a word for harp and they had a word for lyre, which was a little bit different and it looked kind of like a handheld harp, a U, that had strings in it that was held here. And sometimes it had a tortoise shell underneath it, kind of like a guitar that would give it resonance. And you played it with a stick, a peculum, like a pick. Sometimes you strummed it, sometimes you plucked it, you know, very much like we would a harp or a guitar, but it was this eclectic instrument. So you got the trumpet and you've got the lyre. Other instruments mentioned in the Old Testament throughout the Psalms, the tambourine. The Pentecostal church, they used the tambourine. 
Right? They, they had it. And you know, for a lot of churches, they would look down on that and think that is low culture, or that is, that is unsophisticated, or that is you can't even do whatever. We, there are a lot of churches that if you saw it, you, we would look down on it. But for them, it was a part of biblical worship. They saw, they saw the tambourine in the Bible and they thought, good. You know, if it's in there, we're going to use it. Harp, cymbal, trumpet, lyre. None of them really instruments we use. Occasionally you'll see the trumpet. Sunday, you know, Easter Sunday, there are times we bring it out. I hear the psalmist saying, grab an instrument. Any instrument. What instrument do you got? A lot of times a church uses the instruments it has. Right? And those who step forward and use their, their, their talents, often that's what we're able to use in worship. Which is why in a small church, you either got one guy strumming it. I've been in churches where they didn't have a musician. And so you just sing. You do what you have to do. The psalmist says, grab an instrument. Grab an instrument and start joining in to the chorus of praise. And it ends with this thing in verse 6, which amazes me with the trumpet of the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King who is Yahweh. So many times I hear that argument, well, if you're coming before the King, your worship should be a certain way. It should show reverence. We'll talk about reverence in a second. What does reverence look like? But here, according to them, when you come before the king, it's with a joyful noise and with the trumpet and with the lyre and with loud voices and people breaking forth. And, you know, it's not sometimes what we think it is. It's loud. It's exuberant. So in verses 7 and 9, he finally calls all of nature to join. All of nature to worship. Why? Why should all nature lift its voice? He says, before the Lord, verse 9, He is coming to judge the earth. I don't know about you, is that, is that for you a source of the most exuberant of praise that you could imagine? That, that should cause all of nature and creation to rise up in worship? The Lord comes to judge. For many people, that's a terrifying thought. For some people, it should be. But for God's people, there is no more good news. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. There is no more good news in that the Lord is coming. And that He will make all things right. And that He comes to judge the earth. And so, we try to imagine the, this sound of creation rising up. The sea to roar. All that fills it. The world that is every voice and tongue and everyone and those who dwell in it. So every person, the sea roaring, the rivers clapping their hands, hills singing, however they do that, joining together. Try to imagine, what does that sound like? I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's going to be as organized as we would sometimes think. God is coming. It's awesome news. But the heart behind this thought then that God is coming and we should worship is this idea. This is God's world. God still reigns over it. And the Lord is coming. And He is coming for His own. He is coming in power. And He is coming to make things right. And the heart that knows that this is God's world and that He is coming. It is awesome. Joy to the world. Let the earth receive her king. And so we see the psalm is 
this psalm is reverent and exuberant. And sometimes I just hear the argument, here's part of my pain in this whole struggle, I think is the, is the polemics that I hear. You know what polemics are? When you argue at the extremes, at the poles. So the ones over here, you're not standing close to the middle and saying, hey, you know, we could work on this, or standing on this side saying, hey, I wrestle with this or whatever. No, you stand on the pole and you say, that is the worst thing ever. Right? And then you have all your arguments for why, and then the other ones stand on this side and say, it's the worst. And we argue in extremes and we say the most degrading and mean things to each other from the poles because we can't stand closer together. Sometimes I hear reverence. If you're going to reverence, you know, for her worship to be reverent, the, the lights should be dimmed and the crowd should be hushed and, and the songs should have minor notes. And that's reverence. And that's how you approach a king. When I read the Psalms, and they say, let us enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. What kind of praise? This kind of praise. And I hear people even argue, well, these, some of these things and those instruments that the psalmist is talking about, they didn't use those actually in their worship services. They just used it when they worshipped on the hills and in the field. And, I mean, the ways that we stretch and do this, I mean, history is very clear. They used all these instruments in worship. And, and, the, and the noise of temple worship was almost legendary. And sometimes it was noise. Because comprehensive notation, the way that we understand it with music, wasn't invented to the Middle Ages. And so music, there was forms of notation. There was ways of keeping people together, but nothing like we have. Nothing like the music of today. So for thousands of years, till the Middle Ages, God's people worship without any formal notation in an eclectic group of whatever instruments they happened to have. And it was good. Reverence, I think, has to do with a worship service. And this is where we come from, where I believe is a theology of worship. Reverent worship is God-centered, God-honoring, Christ-exalting. And sometimes it has minor notes like some of the Psalms. And sometimes and oftentimes it has the sound of Psalm 98. So let's back up and I want to just touch as we hit two things as the, the closing pieces then is the command. Sing. And sing new songs. The command to sing. To make a joyful noise if you run through it. Sing, sing. Make a joyful noise. Make a joyful noise. Break forth. Break forth into joyous song. Sing praises. Let the sea roars and the rivers clap. It's a powerful call to worship. We read, we read our calls to worship, but here's a call to worship. Right? And you read this psalm as it's calling the whole earth to worship. The Savior, our God, delivers and so we receive this command to sing. And it, it's a command that's repeated. I mean, we see singing throughout. We see it starting in, in the earliest pages of the Bible all the way into Revelation. Singing is all the way through there, but we get the command. This command that's here in Psalm 98, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. That command to sing is repeated again and again. Why do we sing? Why does is, why is it saturate the Bible? And why does it come to us as a command. And I would say there are two answers. And here's the thing, I mean, as I, as I do this, I mean, I, I, I'm trying, how, how to, you know, get my heart across and explain things, you know. I, I love the old writers. 
I read the Puritans. I have two degrees in historic and systematic theology where my, my writing, my thesis was in the doctrine of sin and the writings of the Puritan John Owen who wrote in the 1600s. I mean, that is the stuff. I read Jonathan Edwards. I've led group studies here where we're singing things like the rare jewel of Christian contentment written in the you know, 1600s by Jeremiah Burroughs. And I love that stuff. And then, so I try to tell everybody, you guys should love that stuff. And you guys should read that stuff. It's rich. It's good. It's historical. It's our tradition. It's our history. And, I, and it's so rich and it's so deep and it's so powerful and it uses such great language and it's got, it's got so much. And then I put on something and three of you come and your feet say, no, I'm not going to do it. And I have, there are folks, and then I, you know, I've had those, even in seminary, there were the biblical theology guys and the systematic theology guys. And the biblical theology guys are the systematic guys. They live in a cloud. You know, they don't, you know, we're right in the text and getting it right from the text. And it's very, you know, contextual and it's very close and it's very whatever. And those systematic guys, they're like taking stuff and they're up here and it's historic and it's all of this. And so they would, they would put down, I mean, there literally was this thing going on while I was there. Stuff being written and stuff being said and done. And the systematic guys who were like, you guys are like children. You can't see the tree, you know, the forest for the trees. You know, the, the Bible teaches us on a big scale and we need to pull together what it teaches us on every topic. And we're not the first ones to do theology and we need to look at the history. You know, these guys have been thinking about it for 2,000 years. And so, so there they are throwing rocks at each other. No, we're right in it right now. And these guys saying, we're looking at the whole, you know, the tradition of it and and so we, we do a thing where we, we do the same kind of thing as we get here. I, I think our singing, as far as I can tell, biblically, and I've done quite a lot of reading over it in the 10 years, our, our singing should be impressive and expressive. Impressive and expressive. The problem is we tend to form camps. There's the expressive camp. And there are a bunch of emotional, feeling-oriented people. And there's the impressive camp. The thinkers and the writers and the ones who love the, you know, and, and one, and they tend to be haters on each other, right? Because impressive, impressive worship is music that is written to make an impression on the soul. That we write words and we write music that impacts us. That we learn exalted words and concepts by singing the song. We learn, right, theology, rich and deep theology by reading these words. They, they impress on us, and music is powerful that way because that's what singing does. It slips past our defenses, right? Singing goes to, to a sort of a deep place. That's why I think it's a human phenomenon. Every culture, every people, Christian, non-Christian, every, you know, spiritual, non-spiritual human sing. And our music gets in. And so there's a place for this impressive music that teaches us language and theology. And this is the hymns. And those who love the hymns argue for the, the powerful, impressive power of those hymns. The theology that we get and the history that is there. And I say 112% amen. They, are, they, they serve the church. Stephen Guthrie wrote this. He says, both the Old Testament prophets and Jesus condemned words had condemning words for those who had learned the words by heart but failed to learn the heart of the words. Song is valuable because he carries the words inside of us and impresses 
us. And because it carries us to the inside of the words. And it does something. And so it is a powerful, powerful tool for the shaping of the soul. And, I, and, I, and you read the Psalms, and you read, if you read from, I don't know, from 95 and back, and you go back the first half, two-thirds of the Psalter, there's a lot of these impressive Psalms. But if you start in, in the mid-90s and go to the end of the Psalms, I would say you've got a bunch of expressive Psalms. That they are of a t- totally different tone. Because when you start focusing on the vertical aspect, not just the way music impresses and shapes us, but just on, in this moment, in this place, how do I express my worship to God? Is there a place for just an expressive worship? An outpouring, spontaneous, new not, not historical, not read in the 1600s and put into words, but, but a new expression of my worship today, like I do in my car, and like other musicians are doing for us by putting our context into music. Expressing how we feel. It's less historical, it's less theological. This hymn is way less theological. There's not a lot of theology, and I'm not saying there isn't. In the first set of verses, first three verses, He is the Savior. Second three verses, he is, we're told He is uh, Lord of all the earth, or King. Verse 6 ends, and He's the King. And, and in verses 7 to 9, He is the Judge. And there is, there is a structure to it. There is a theology in it. But it's really simple. And really expressive. It's really, in a sense, spontaneous. The psalmist said, you know, some of, the, some of the psalms, you feel like it took them months to write. Like it is crafted. Psalm 119, very repetitive psalm. Psalm 119, it took somebody, I don't know, years to write that thing. I mean, it is, it is a work of art in that sense. And a gift to the church in its own way. But so is Psalm 98, where I think the guy had, had an experience on Monday and wrote a, hymn, a psalm, a hymn of worship on Tuesday. And it just expresses exactly what he feels in that moment. An outpouring of personal worship. It's personal and exuberant and emotional and direct. You know what I mean by direct? You ever, you know, listen to somebody else's prayer and you can join them. I'm not saying you can't pray with somebody and follow their prayer, but it's no, it is no substitute. Whether I've written a prayer and you pray it with me, it is no substitute to you in your car crying out to God in your voice, in your context, in your moment. You must pour out your soul. And it may not be. There's, there's a place, do you see where there's a place the church needs both? Great music that is carefully crafted and impressive and gives us the history and the theology and it teaches and trains us. And there is a place in the church for our worship to be expressive and exuberant and spontaneous in ours. It's a big difference between songs written by the masters to impress rich theology on the church and songs written by God's people to express now, simply in our own words, how we feel. There's a freedom and a directness to break forth into song. Boyce says that Psalm 98 is all is pure joy and celebration. All is pure. Is there a place? I would say, is that okay? Is that allowed? Is it allowed to have a song because it's simpler? 
it's in a sense shallow in one sense. It doesn't got a lot of themes built through. There's a lot of repetition. Sing, make song, make joyful noise twice. Joyous song, sing praises, sing, sing joyous praises. Use trumpets, use lyres, make noise. Let the seas and the rivers and the hills. And you throw in the theology, the Lord is coming. And the Lord delivers. The hymns, the psalms, when you read through the psalms, some are long, some are short. Some are really complicated. Some are really simple. Do you know that the shortest book in the Bible is a psalm? It's got like two verses. Do you know that the longest book in the Bible is a psalm? The thing is huge, right? Psalm 119. A lot of you don't even read it because it's so long. Right? But they're, so they're long, they're short, they're complicated. Psalm 119 is an acrostic. There are 22 letters in the Greek alphabet. I think that's right around you doing English. But there, and and there's, a, there's a 10 verse set for each letter of the al- Hebrew alphabet running through that psalm. And each one, but it's all about the, God's word and commands. They're complicated and they're simple. Down to just one or two lines. Some of them are extraordinarily repetitive. Psalm 136 is very repetitive. Some are antiphonal. Some are like choruses. Some are more like ballads. Some are somber. Some are exuberant. And it's all good. It's all good. The command is not only to sing, but the command is to sing new songs. And what I hear the psalmist saying to the church is this. Be continuously creative. Don't get bogged down with my song. Sing new songs. Every age of the church, I'm going to walk through in a minute, I'm going to bore you as we move toward a close. Uh, Every age of the church is in a sense gets bogged down in its music and says, okay, it's time to stop singing new songs because we like ours. And we don't want to sing yours because they're new. And they're different and I don't like them. Right? Five times we're commanded to sing. Four different psalms command us to sing new songs. Isaiah 42, which is a messianic and God is coming to judge psalm, says sing new uh, prophecy. Isaiah 42, sing new songs. Isaiah uh, Psalm 144, he says, I will sing a new song. Psalm 40, he says, God gave me a new song. Keen commentator on this says, why a new song? And his answer is because new mercies, new deliverances, new gifts, new triumphs in in our lives, in our experience, demand new songs. God's marvelous things or doings are many and they continue. I experience them in my life every day. And so do you. And so does the church through the ages. His mercies are new every morning and his, His songs should almost be as new as His mercy. Jesus taught us to pray. Never think about that. I, I sometimes think about this argument and think about if we follow this through, we should in our prayers. Jesus taught us to pray and He gave us the perfect prayer, did He not? And maybe we should just keep praying that prayer over and over again because it's rich with theology. It's impressive. It's historical and theological. And Jesus gave it to us. Now, I think we should pray it regularly, and we do on a semi-regular basis work it into our worship. But we don't just sing, pray that prayer. We pray other prayers. We pray new prayers. Why do we pray new prayers? And we don't think we're betraying Jesus by doing it. Because 
Because I have to pray my heart now. I have to pray our circumstances now. I have to express our needs now. I have to express our triumphs now. So my prayer is, thank you God for, the, for finally having the builder's permit in hand. And thank you God for, for selling our building. And if I, were to, if I were to write a song, we would incorporate some of that stuff. And what God has done and how He has gone before us and provided all of our needs. We pray new prayers. We don't pray Calvin's prayers. They were good. Augustine had good ones. I got a collection of historic ones and they're good. And I, and I used them and I resource them and I sometimes use them and pray them. But, but they're a part of something bigger. They're not the thing itself. Every generation, in a sense, must express their worship in their own voice or it's not their own voice. Every generation, every nature, every culture will be writing new ones. When, when Thomas took the Gospel to India... I don't think he brought the lyre and the trumpet and and said, this is the way you do it. And part of the missionary failing of the last hundred years is we didn't just take the gospel to cultures, we brought American culture to cultures and we said, the church looks like this. And we, we tried to make them sing our songs using our instruments and doing our thing. And one of the great, in this whole last 50 years as well, is a revolution in missions to allow the gospel to find its own voice in its culture and to support a lot more of indigenous and not just impose the voice on the church. Do you know that in the 13th century, Aquinas wrote, you know Thomas Aquinas, church father of the Middle Ages? Okay, Thomas Aquinas, he was a great medieval theologian who wrote the Summa Theologica, see? And, 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 uh, and anyway, he is, he is claimed by both Catholics and often in the Reformed tradition is, is stuff that he had to say. He was a great theologian. He wrote this, our church does not use musical instruments, such as harps and psalteries, stringed instruments, to the praise withal, that she may not seem to Judaize, that she may not seem to uh, be too Old Testament, to be too Jewish, which was cultural at that time, the Jewish communities that were around. And so we're not going to use instruments because it will be compromising with the Jewish culture or seem too Old Testament. Erasmus, who wrote in the 1500s during the Reformation. Erasmus was a reformer who stayed in the Catholic Church and tried to seek change from inside. But he shared much of the heart for reform as Calvin and Luther and these guys. But he stayed within and he, and he tried to fight inside for the reform of the church. He wrote this, We have brought into our churches certain operatic and theatrical music. Such a confused, disorderly chattering of some words that I hardly think in any way was ever heard in Grecian and Roman theaters, much less the church. The church rings with the noise of trumpets and pipes and dulcimers, and human voices strive to bear part with them. Men run to the church as to the theater. And this is what happens when they, they, they accuse the church of taking culture in, and then men run to the church like they did to cultural expressions, to the theater, to concerts. And then he says this, and for this end, the organ makers are hired with great salaries and a company of boys who waste all their time learning these whining tones. 
All right, so here you have a 15th century, 16th century guy in the church who wants reform, who sees the organ coming into worship and says it is a waste of money, it is a waste of time, it is operatic and theatrical, the place it holds in the culture, and it's whining in its tone and I don't like it, and it shouldn't be in the church. Right? So here's the organ making its way in. A couple hundred years later, the organ was God's instrument. He invented it for the church. In the Reformation, they used secular tunes. And I'm going to go like two minutes over. I know I'm, going to, boy, I'm, I'm about to close. I am. They used secular tunes. They didn't just take bar. You know, sometimes it said they took, they took bar tunes and put music to them. They didn't do that. But they, they wrote new hymns and they wrote music to accompany them in the popular style. They wrote their own music in the popular style. So much so that in Geneva, there's probably not a more reformed, conservative place on planet in history or time than Calvin's Geneva. That's where Calvin labored and worked and he did church the way God intended it for all time. And they wrote hymns. And those outside of Geneva criticized them and called them Geneva jigs. And you can read it in history. Why? Because their tunes were livelier and full of life, and they, and they copied popular culture. And this, of course, is inappropriate for the church to sound anything like something else other than the organ. Which is why then in the 1700s we had the evangelical awakenings, and people like William Romaine, who are in the church, say vital religion began to decay among us. And in this situation, the hymn makers find the church, and they are suffered to thrust out the psalms and make way for their own compositions. Alright, so here's a guy saying, we've been singing psalms to the organ, and here they come writing hymns and bringing them into the church, and it's allowed. And the hymn writers were despised because they pushed out the older songs, the psalms, and the things that they've been historically singing. Hymns were the contemporary music of the time. In the 18th and 19th century, the revivalist hymns came into the church. And the hymn singers degraded them as too subjective and too repetitive and had no place in the church. And worst thing of all, with these new, repetitive, simple, subjective hymns that entered the church through the revivals, they started using the piano. Yes, they did. They brought the piano in, and everybody knows the piano is a concert instrument for theater, and concerts, and for secular entertainment. And everybody knows it has no place in church worship. And so, Greg Howlett, who wrote, church historian, a music historian, said, until the late 1800s, the organ was the church's primary instrument, and the piano was considered a secular instrument, unfit for the church. Compromising with the culture. When you bring the piano in, right? You are, you are going secular. You are, you're going pop music with the concert goers of the day. <clears throat> you see that in every age, the church has struggled with the temptation to despise that which is new and that which is different and that which is popular. And at every age, the church as the culture has gone through shifts and it has seen revivals and new, new experiences of God's grace, has written new music to express it. 
in the language that they know, which is the culture in which they live, which had changed ever since the organ in the 1200s came in, 1100s came into use. And now the piano was in. And, and now, now God's two instruments are piano and organ. Right? Because they're the follow-up of the trumpet and the lyre. And we all know that's biblical. John Frame says, revival usually produces new waves of music. Which is why in the 60s, the 50s, and the 60s, and the 70s, and our culture underwent a revolution of which we are still feeling the waves of it. And we can't sort out what's culture, what's church, what's godly, what's ungodly. And the baby and the bathwater go out together. And ever since the 60s and the Jesus, people came into the church as a revival and a wave of young people being saved out of a rock culture. And as they came in and expressed their worship in their own voice, ever since the church has despised them and have gone to war with itself. Make a joyful noise, all the earth. Sing a new song. What does it sound like? It sounds like one thing in India. It sounds like one thing in the 1200s. It sounds like another thing in the 1500s in the Reformation. It sounds like another thing in the 1700s in the revivals. And it sounds like another thing in the, in the revivals of the 1800s. And it sounds like another thing in the turn of this century. It sounds like another thing in the 21st century. And somehow we must, in my opinion, marry our new song and our love and passion for our history and our tradition our impressive music, and our expressive music. Every culture uses different instruments and has different songs and different styles. Every generation, even the Western church, if you look at its history, it's been at war with itself over music since the day it started with its Geneva jigs. Piper says this, the mingling of historic and contemporary music is a value of his church the mingling of historic and contemporary music, which I believe expresses where I am. We love the hymns. We will always sing them. We love the piano. We will always use it. We love the choir. And it sings regularly throughout the year and at the high times. And we always, we love liturgy and a, a prayer of confession and the different ways. You know, we love, but we also love to mingle it with contemporary forms that don't sacrifice biblical gospel Christ-centered, God-honoring worship in a variety of styles. No church or service can be all things to all people. But we do, value, we do not value stylistic narrowness. We believe there are affections owing to God that different tunes and different texts and different genres may awaken better than others. We will strive to be who we are without exalting our own tastes as a standard of excellence and power. We will seek God's guidance in each worship setting to be both indigenous and stretching. Indigenous, the voice of the people. Stretching, whether that's traditional music that seeks to impress on us theology and words and language of of an earlier church, our fathers. I hear in that expressive and impressive, indigenous, that is expressive music that arises from the people indigenously and spontaneously, as well as stretching music, which is impressive and stretches us back into the history and the life and tradition of our church. 
Final word I'll give to John Wesley. Basically, whatever you sing, John Wesley says, sing lustily and with a good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, because that's not reverent. Sing lustily and with good courage, because that is reverent worship. Lift up your voice with strength and sing. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved your church and your hand has been upon us through the ages. Forgive your church for the way that we've in fight through the ages, how we judge each other and how we, how we empower and stand in our own place to judge the rest of the church over time and over place. Father in heaven, would you set us free that we may join the chorus of worship wherever we find it. And if we found ourselves in India, we would worship. If we found ourselves in a Pentecostal church, we would learn to worship. Teach us true reverence, which is all about you. May our hearts and our singing and our worship be all about you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.